Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome back to the Beeson Podcast. I hope you had a chance to listen to the lecture of Dr. James Earl Massey as he presented Stewards of the Story, Stewards and Ritual in the last lecture that we played on the podcast. Well, this is the second part of that same lecture series. Delivered here at Beeson in 2004, the William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching. Dr. Massey had agreed to come and to bring the lectures that Dr. John Stott had been slated to give during that week because of unexpected illness. Dr. Stott was not able to do so. Uh, He begins this lecture by referring to Dr. Stott, and you'll see in very affectionate terms how he speaks of this uh, great colleague of his and one of the great statesmen of the world Christian movement uh, in the last 100 years. A few years after this presentation, Dr. Stott was taken home to be with the Lord. We certainly miss him, but we're grateful for his living legacy, and it's reflected here in this wonderful series Dr. Massey gave, Stewards of the Story. The first part of this lecture that we listened to a month or so ago was Stewards of the Story, the Steward and Ritual. Today's lecture, he extends it further on the theme, the Steward and Reality. He's talking about what it means to be a real steward of God's story, an authentic, faithful steward. Listen to this great lecture by our dear friend, Dr. James Earl Massey. Stewards of the Story. I could not have asked for a more gracious and responsive group of listeners. And you have been more than listeners. You have been sharing your spirit with mine as we have gathered across these three days. And I thank you for your openness, your regard, and your kind comments to me. It has been a blessing to live in the same century with John Stott. And the blessing is more particularized in my case because I've had the pleasure of working side by side with him and having table fellowship with him, which made me know him at closer range. And to stand in his stead in the midst of his solemn appointment of illness humbles me. He will be hearing these lectures and in doing so he will hear the comment I just made. Would you join me in thanking God for his life? Almighty God, we give you thanks that in each generation you raise up those whom you select to serve your will in unique ways and to honor your Son by unique ministries. We pray yet again for your servant John Stott, asking for his recovery and for a longer life of meaningful service, even as his life has been meaningful in service in the past. With thanksgiving, we make our request. Amen. On the first day, as I introduced the theme that we would be covering across these days, I treated the preacher as God's steward. brief description of Stuart was given, the applicable text that Paul has used in applying that image to your work and mine was done, and then some implications drawn from the meaning of the trust God has placed in us to be his stewards. On yesterday, we treated some of the rituals that have surrounded the work we do. The rituals that have grown up through the centuries, 
We are not responsible for the shaping of those rituals, but we are responsible to help people understand the meaning of them. And we are perhaps responsible for changing them if they need to be changed, or honoring them if they should be continued. The steward and rituals. Today, the steward and reality. In 1918, when John Kelman was addressing seminarians and pastors at Yale Divinity School, giving his set of the Beecher Lectures that year, he reminded the listeners that while some persons go to church to be socially respectable, and some others go to comfort their conscience, there were those who go to church because they desire what the church has to offer, namely real help for life in the real world. And then he said, in that word reality, we find the root of the matter. Yes, that word reality explains not only the root of preaching, but also it explains the fruit expected from preaching, namely real persons. I did not say real believers, I said real persons. Believing is to have the end of shaping personality. Real preaching has a distinct ring to it, and it has a very definite power in it. Real preaching will not be sterile. Real preaching will not be abstract. Real preaching will not be arrogantly eloquent. Real preaching will never be terrifyingly out of touch with life as people know it. Real preaching deals with real life. No aspect left untouched. This business of reality. There's the reality of the story of which we are stewards. We are not dealing with fiction as we preach God's word. The story is about God's actions in the world. The storyline is about salvation history. And a real God has responded with passionate concern toward erring humans to rescue the perishing and to care for the dying. And the vitality of the preaching tradition is most surely felt when God's concerns are highlighted when we preach. And when preaching does not deal with God's activity toward human beings, it is not the story. It is only talk. When we who preach can point with convictional knowledge as witnesses to that salvation in our own experience, then real preaching takes place. He or she who tries to preach without a convictional knowledge of the experience is not doing real preaching. Preaching grows out of reality and speaks to the real situations of humankind. What is the reality out of which preaching grows? It's found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. The reality is, God is and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. When we who preach are aware that we are doing our ministry on the basis of the reality of God, there is power in what we do. If we think it is only in our strength that we are speaking, then we have missed the point. 
Preaching lives in the reality that God is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Now those are the root principles for our work. The story we are sent to tell is not a mere human fiction. It deals with facts. The fact of God. The fact of God's compassion. The fact of God's demonstrated love. The fact that Jesus came into the world. The fact of his being one of us. The fact that he died on our behalf. See, the facts are related to the truth. The truth has to deal with the meaning of the facts. But this is reality. And we help people know and understand this reality in order to help them go beyond sight and sound, in order to gain strength to handle with dignity the heavy weight of the human condition. Real preaching, I say again, readily affirms that God is. And we seek to relate people to the real God. Now, we in preaching do not overlook tragedy. We do not look indifferently at necessity. We do not look askance at circumscribing circumstance. We are realists. We're not talking about pie in the sky by and by. We are dealing with life here and now with the help of God to live it here and now. That's what preaching is about. Faces reality, things as they are, human pain, human sickness, human disease, sin, distresses, calamities, personal evil, social evil, but always with a concern to face these and handle them in the light of God's reality. As preachers, our own contact with this undergirding life that is the basis of preaching, our own contact with it will betray and evidence itself in several ways. In one way, that contact will provide a plus element in our own experience. In another way, there will be some spillover from it that people will sense from our demeanor, from our service to them, from the spirit in which we do what we do, and also from our leadership in worship. I don't know what your tradition is, but I tend to lead worship when I'm to preach. When I was pastoring, I did not leave that to someone else. I planned the worship in conjunction with the minister of music and all the others, but I led the worship there's something about the minister showing himself and herself as worshiper with the worshipers that cause, causes a deeper sense of bonding between the people and the leader. To leave these things off as if they are something that can be handled by others, there can be a case made for others leading in worship, but I think the best case can be made for the minister being the worship leader. Willard Sperry said this about the reality that's required in worship. He said, it is double in its nature. On the one hand, there is the objective truthfulness of the transactions of the act of worship. And on the other hand, there must be the sincere, subjective response on our part to that truthfulness. And what better person than the minister, the leader of the congregation, leading the worship, sharing with the people out of his or her own heart as we go before God. There is a tone that we tend to convey as the leader in worship that the people catch. 
I have been in services as a guest where I've seen the minister doing nearly everything else while the worship service is going on, and then finally tunes in when the preaching time comes. What is worship? Must not God have our full attention? All of us giving full attention? Somehow we have prostituted the whole meaning of why we gather. We have lost the reality. Real preaching calls for the preacher to be real about life and address the realities of life out of the reality of God. And when we do so, we are always going to give a message that has a note of grace in it. For God works by means of his favor toward us. Grace. David H.C. Reed in his Beecher Lecture said, People listen to a preacher expecting grace. Grace. Grace that discloses. Grace that describes. Grace that offers a new direction. Grace that opens up that direction, saying, this is the way, walk in it. Grace that offers forgiveness of sins. Grace that provides renewal of life. Grace that says there's something more to life than what you've seen so far. Something better. You see, preaching is not mere theological statement, although our statements must be theological. It's a living word. It's a lively word about the grace of God, about the goodness of God, about the faithfulness of God. You see, preaching grows out of the reality of God. Ours is the word about all of this. So we don't deal with the nature of religion when we preach. We deal with the meaning of salvation when we preach. Religious life and salvation can be two separate things. This distinction is quite imperative. Therefore, I had to state it. Helmut Tilke. Sorry to dip into your area now. He's a specialist in Helmut Tillicke's preaching. Helmut Tillicke once explained, Christian preaching involves letting persons meet the decisive active word. A word that strikes us as an effectual word. A word which breaks off the old existence and starts a new existence. Bringing sins to light and forgiving them. Changing God's rejection into an acceptance which gives one a new future and makes one a new creature by the miracle of the Holy Spirit. That is real preaching. And it highlights always, I say again, divine grace that deals radically with human sin. Real preaching not only deals with grace, but it takes into strict account the moral and religious climate and the prevailing conditions of any setting in which the preaching has to be done. The preacher who wants to preach in a real way must address the prevailing assumptions and beliefs by which the happenings in our times are determined. Samuel Miller in giving his Beecher Lectures in 1971, said, Preaching which assumes that proclamation is all that is necessary, disregarding the contemporary consciousness, is too facile and too arrogant to commend itself as more than an ecclesiastical presumption. You see, in preparing to preach, we must seek to know what dominates the imagination of our hearers. We must seek to identify the loyalties to which they are giving their energies and their time. Now, it might take us a while to discover the right answers to these questions, but we must try and we must try until we succeed in finding out. Only so can we address the sermons 
like a hunter uses his gun looking squarely at the game. What are the men and women of our time thinking? Really? What are the men and women of our time seeking? Really? What is the real spirit of the times now upon us? What extremes are prevalent and why? What tensions lurk menacingly between those extremes? By what perspectives are our modern understandings determined? By what perspectives are our so-called postmodern understandings determined? What does the secularity of our times mean? What do the relativisms of our time mean? Why this proneness to raise questions and debate all possible answers to those questions, never arriving at any answer at all? That's postmodernism. Because absolutes have been scrapped. What does it augur for us that there is such a widespread loss of any felt need for accountability? Scripture tells us that all these are symptoms of a diseased human condition that points to our need for help from beyond ourselves. And the preacher must tell the people this. Instead of respecting postmodernism, we must preach to undercut it. The story we are sent to preach tells about the help the world needs. And it also states that that help is readily available. The present times are dark. You know that. I know that. There's an acknowledged eclipse of faith. There's a crisis of belief. There's a reduction of biblical certainties. And religion has become psychologized. And there's a never-ending quest on the part of multitudes to find something larger than themselves with which to identify, be it sports, be it money, be it success, or something else. And we, the preachers, must help them identify why their cravings are like that. We've got to tell them and model in our own lives what it means not to be victimized by any of this. Joseph Ford Newton once commented in print that when new theories of knowledge and sad life conditions make for a tangled time, setting the skyline back, preaching is not hurt, it is helped. Then he added that the light of preaching shines best when the skies are dark. Some of us know that. Some are still in need of finding it out. Preaching does not suffer when the times are awry. It's time for preaching when the sky is dark and folk are going the wrong way. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. Ah, you were never needed as much in your lifetime as you are needed now. We must preach to help people see reality as God wills reality to be. In our work, our very presence, our sign value as preachers is a sign to people that God is not through with them. As long as a preacher comes on the scene, it's a sign that God is still at work in the world in a salvific way. Willard Brewing Ask this about the preacher. Who else encompasses the whole universe, seen and unseen, in life's analysis? Who else measures life, not in scales of material temporal values, but in terms of eternal treasures? You see, we are needed. Why do we wait on cues from the world as to get our sense of importance? If God has summoned you to be a steward, 
You are important. And nothing in the world needs to commend that. Oh, we're looking for accolades and popularity. And we're yielding our power to ephemeral things. What a trustworthy assignment and all-important task the steward has. Well, I've been talking about the reality of God, the realities of life to which we address the word that is to bring a change. But over it all, over against those realities, against those realities about which I've been speaking, there stands another reality. The reality of the preacher's selfhood. We take our stand, intent to speak our word, and psychic strain makes our message muddled. Have you ever experienced that? We want to tell the story and tell it with fervor as well as with faith, but a strange coolness and a felt detachment prevails within. You ever experienced that? We try to draw upon what we have seen and known and to speak about those matters with clear thoughts and with persuasive speech, and yet something inside blurs it all. And the desired clarity, the desired poise, and the desired energy seems strangely absent on that day. Have you ever experienced that? No preacher moves very far along the road of service before realizing the need. Not only to resist sinning, we should be done with that anyway once we become a believer. But how to deal with the problems of tiredness. Mental fatigue, psychic strain, and just plain human limitations. What Harry Howard once referred to as the incompleteness that inheres in human nature. One of the saddest moments I had in my life came in the pulpit one Sunday morning years ago. I was in a period of tiredness. And I found myself speaking on, but standing out my, outside myself, listening to myself and looking at myself. Somehow, my experiences in life had split me. I saw myself standing there in the pulpit, speaking. And I was no longer in control of what I was saying. Finally, I came back into oneness. I hope that never happens to me again, but it was a time when I needed some rest. We must deal with the selfhood. It's a reality. And no matter how grand and glorious the calling we have, there is still the self that has to handle the calling. There's a law that must be honored in dealing with ourselves. Dr. John Hope Years ago, while he was president of Morehouse College, said in a chapel talk to the students there, it's an awful feeling, young gentlemen. Well, it's an all-male college, so you'll understand why he spoke to them as gentlemen. It's an awful feeling, young gentlemen, after a day's work. It's an awful thing to have a feeling as if you've just been squeezed of everything you have. Sooner or later, every preacher who wants to be a real preacher, knows that feeling. We know the calling we have. We know the necessity for our work. We know that we have some gifts graciously bestowed to serve in that way. And we might, if we've been in the work long, have gained some wisdom from our experience. And we might have gained some margin of influence because of that experience. But in spite of all of those benefits... There sometimes will fall over our work the shadow of our own frailty, the shadow of our own incompleteness. Paul understood it. That's why in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 10, he said, We have this treasure in clay jars, 
so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. So there are three things we must remember. Remember our humanity. Remember the importance of holiness, by which I mean conformity to the image of Christ by staying in Christ's presence, staying under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And remember the need for humility. Humanity, holiness, and humility. Humility? Because our personal gifts are limited. That is a reality. No one of us has all of the gifts needed to make your congregation perfect. It takes the ministry, not just the minister, to help a church develop properly. Don't be afraid to call in others to exercise their gifts to help you develop your congregation. You cannot do it alone. A variety of ministries must be represented, reflected, and realized as we seek to do our work. Paul put it like this, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 6. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of services, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. We need the ministry to mature the church, not just the minister. Keep it in mind, our gifts are limited. Second, our effectiveness, our individual effectiveness is limited. The reality is no one preacher's handling of the gospel will draw everyone who hears it. There is at work in church life, as in all of life, the law of attraction and appeal. For example, you might succeed some great leader, follow someone who had a long tenure at a church, and you will inevitably be measured against that leader's record. You'll be measured against that leader's natural gifts. You'll be measured against that leader's demonstrated vision. And you must sometimes work hard to gain and then to keep the allegiance of members who were first drawn to that church by someone else's giftedness. Accept it as a fact. It's the reality. I've known persons who were just so jealous that they didn't want the previous leader's name mentioned by the members of the congregation. What fools they are. And if the leader was still alive, they never had any kind of service of appreciation for them because they didn't want the previous leader to come back and the people's minds be stirred again by their sense of loyalty to that leader. What a shame. Person's gift makes room for him or her, the proverb is said. But always that room involves a very limited and restricted circle. There are some who are drawn to certain kinds and styles of preaching, and some who are turned off by certain kinds and styles. Accept it as a fact. You will not have everybody in the community in your one congregation. Humility? Yes, because your physical presence and your physical powers are limited. Paul, what a wise leader. No wonder God called him to be an apostle and gave him the wisdom to be one. 
He admitted his own limitations in this area. I'm basing this on 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, where Paul says, <coughs> excuse me, he says something that seems to have been a reference to a formal charge voiced by some whom Paul had failed to win. I'm saying this thinking that this reference was not just Paul using a literary diatribe to, to make a point. I think he was mentioning this because it was an actual situation that he faced. Well, here's what they said. Dr. Tillman would probably, in his exegetical class, help you to come to some terms with the possibility of going one way or the other in interpreting the grammatical difficulties here in the Greek. But this is what it says in verse 10. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. That's what they said. Now, if it was an actual complaint, then it indicates those critics and the lack of esteem they held for Paul's personal presence in their midst. And I'm going to ask, I wonder whether or not some of Paul's opponents were so crass as to plague him with publicly stated insults like those about his physical appearance. Did they really scorn him because of visible defects from an eye disease he might have had? Did they scorn him because of the effects of malaria on his body? Did they scorn him because of epilepsy, perhaps? Well, for sure, we know that he had several beatings. He refers to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he refers also to the stonings he underwent. Now, how do you think Paul looked as a congregational leader there in Corinth, having been stoned? He was no beautiful sight with the bruises still visible. I had a friend, a minister friend, who had an accident, unfortunate accident, and afterward he was crippled. In constant pain, in spite of the operation that took part of his leg off, prosthesis was placed there, and he could walk, but he had to use a cane thereafter. And one of his officers said to me, We don't want our pastor going around with a cane. We don't want a pastor walking with a cane. In her pride, she felt ashamed because her leader had to use a cane. What foolishness. All I'm saying is that whatever his physical problems were, Paul had learned to live with them and to do his work in spite of them. And as we live, as we labor, as we age, we too will know not only physical benefits that we once enjoyed, but physical problems with which we must deal. And the way we handle those problems can often influence the way people will view us and regard us. Let me illustrate it. Scotsman James McGregor had a boyhood plagued by having to face the public. Yes, plagued by having to face the public because he had short, twisted, and deformed legs. Well, he was called into ministry. And he thought that his physical circumstance would confine him to some out-of-the-way place of service, fearing that his bodily appearance would be reprehensible to some aesthetic-minded parishioners. But despite that, he went on to fame at one church, St. Cuthbert, for 40 years. He was their pastor. You see, we can manage whatever limitations we have if we face the realities of them and depend upon God for graciousness. Let me go on. James Morrison lived in the early 19th century in Glasgow. He learned the same thing that McGregor learned. 
Morrison suffered an injury to his vocal cords, and his voice was thereafter low and very coarse and generally weak, although at times, while he was speaking, his larynx would become heated and his voice seemed closer to the old, desired sound the people had known. But although his tone was not as orchestrated as before, Morrison remained encouraged, and he kept his speech attractive, and he kept his content rich. He made sure that if his hearers ever had to strain to hear him, it would be worth their effort to listen and worth his effort to speak. Not all of us have attractive voices, but whatever voice we have, if it can be used in a real way, it can make a difference in the name of God. More illustrations. Robert W. Dale, the noted English Congregationalist and the first Englishman to give the Lyman Beecher Lectures at Yale in 1877, he suffered from a periodic nervousness and he had times of inward struggle with emotional depression. His problem was rooted in the temperament he had received by nature. Later in his old age, his own assistant, George Barber, was undergoing a similar kind of emotional strain. So Dr. Dale advised him, George, give God thanks for your temperament. Dale was advising out of his own sad experience of a nervous collapse that had laid him aside for three months when, just into his thirties, he became the sole pastor of Cars Lane Church there in Birmingham, England. He was co-pastor with John Angel James for about six years. But after a few days of illness, John Angel James died in 1859, and young Dale was left as the only pastor. He didn't feel ready for it, and he had a nervous collapse. It resulted in a downtime for him, but the downtime mellowed his soul. And it was out of his experience of having been down that he advised, and out of that experience that he preached. But he always had to watch himself with great care across the rest of his years. Frederick William Robertson, also of the same period, 19th century. A man with a quick mind, handsome looks, an intense devotion to the Lord, but he suffered from a highly sensitive nervous system that caused him to be intensely inward and outwardly distant at times. Near the end of what proved to be a short life, he didn't even live to become 40. His languor and his dark moods deepened because of increasingly severe head pains, and only later was it known that these were the result of an abscess that had developed at the base of his brain. During the last months of his life, Robertson recorded some notes about what he was experiencing from this malady. One of those notes, penned just a few days before he died, ended as a kind of scratchy, incomplete attempt. The lines were zigzag on the page because he was writing in extreme pain. And here is what he wrote. I shall not get over this. God's will be done. I am writing in torture. And that word torture was the last word Frederick William Robertson ever wrote. But a few months before he got to that point, in a letter he wrote to one of his friends, he said, it is a wise man's duty to try to work within his limitations in the best way he can, and to grumble as little as possible, or else cut himself asunder at once from all restrictions and obligations by giving up his work entirely. You see, I'm saying all of this because there are times when we will face physical limitations which cannot be overlooked as we seek to fulfill our stewardship. But divine grace for dealing with them 
can always be our portion, provided we are real. Accept the realities and trust in God for real grace. John Hall, also of the 19th century, had a very wise word when giving his Beecher lectures at Yale in 1874. Physical conditions are not despicable. You cannot always determine the strength of your body or the vigor of your constitution, but you can conserve what you've received by proper food, little enough of it, pure air, and sufficient exercise. What equipment physically have you been given for your stewardship? We've got to work with what we've been given. I know my limitations physically, and I try not to cross the line that I know I must not cross without myself physically giving down. Charles Sylvester Horn, who lived into the 20th century, very magnetic and supremely gifted preacher out of England, gave the Beecher Lectures at Yale in 1914. He died one year later at only 49 years of age. And probably, W. Robertson Nicoll commented, because he could not measure the limits of his strength or unfailingly keep within those limits. It was his nature to answer every call and to encumber himself with labor that was for others rather than for him. You see, recognizing our gifts and staying within those gifts will be a means of helping us to handle ourselves with wisdom as we handle our stewardship. The self must be handled along with the service. What are your gifts? Study them well so you'll know the range of their operation and stay out of the range of somebody else's operation. I know Paul said he tried to be all things to all people. I know, I know what he said. But he also recognized the reality of his limitations, didn't he? Humility along with holiness, blending in our humanity. Humility again, because our knowledge is limited. We don't know enough to be proud. We don't know enough to compare ourselves among ourselves. And one of the tragedies, even in an academic setting, is to put the mind ahead of everything else. There must be balance there. There must be balance. There must be balance. Humility. Also because our time for living and serving is limited. That is a reality. Your steps and my steps are marked. Your days and my days are numbered. Despite the greatness of our task and despite the strategic importance of any assignment we have, the time will come when we each will be forced by life to let go and die. And even if we are not willing to let go, we still have to die. There is something I carry with me in my wallet all the time. Well, you don't need to see it. I... It's a little part of a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow entitled, Something Left Undone. Before I quote it, let me tell you why this is so important to me. I'm... Remembering 1993, when I was laid up in the hospital 
with an illness that it took the Lord to deal with, along with the doctor. And as I faced what I thought was going to be the end, I did what Hezekiah did. I turned my face to the wall, and I said to the Lord, Lord, let me live. Let me live. There were three things that I wanted to get done. He let me live through the night. Next morning, the doctor came. Another battery of tests were administered. And surely enough, there was a real problem. Today I stand before you, my time having been extended from that time, because God is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Those three things, I have been working on them since that time that I asked God to spare me. One of them I finished, it was my autobiography. There are two others on which I'm presently working. I don't know if I will finish those two other projects. I'm not saying those are the only projects on which I'm working, but I'm talking about the three things I had in mind when I was talking to the Lord, asking for more time. And since the time of his restoring me, and by the way, I'm on no medications now, not any. Since that time, I carry with me this little poem. I'll read just a portion of it to you. Labor with what zeal we will, something still remains undone. Something uncompleted still waits the rising of the sun. I'm mindful of that every day. But the time is going to come when each and all of us will have to let go, leaving some assignment unmet, leaving some duty unfinished, leaving some dream unfulfilled. But what does it matter if you've been doing what you've been sent to do and have been faithful in it? What does it matter if you leave something undone? God knew it would be left undone. All he wanted was for you to do what you were supposed to do during the time you were given. Something uncompleted. Ah, something uncompleted. Something uncompleted remained when Vernon Johns died. Vernon Johns was Martin Luther King Jr.'s legendary predecessor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Johns collapsed dead in 1963 after a speech at Howard University uncannily on the romance of death. He died on the spot at Howard University after lecturing on the romance of death. And somebody said, he arranged that with the Almighty. <laughs> Something uncompleted remained when Sandy Ray died in 1979. Another eminent Baptist preacher and a friend of mine. He died in 1979 while in his Cornerstone Baptist Church pulpit in Brooklyn, New York. In the pulpit! Something uncompleted remained when the supremely gifted and stupendously gracious Samuel D. Witt Proctor died in 1997. Dr. Proctor was one of America's most respected preachers and one of its greatest educators. He had a heart attack while he was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, lecturing. He was there in spite of his knowledge of a long-term heart condition, but he was there because he was still eager to help faith grow in hard places. Still busy being a steward for God, eager to preach, eager to influence everybody else to fulfill their God-given potential. 
He'd been in university and church work for 50 years, but still had some important agenda, agenda items that he thought were necessary to bring his career to a climax. <laughs> In 1989, he was mindful of the physical uncertainties he faced as he retired, but he was still eager about being a steward. And so he stated in one of his books, one of his last, My Moral Odyssey, he said, I will use all of my time left, God willing, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to advocate the pursuit of real community in America and in the world. That was the same kind of resolve that another dear friend had. Another noted great servant of the Lord, Irvin Kensley Bailey, who died in October last year. What a unique, what an invaluable, and what an intrepid visionary pastor he was. Concord Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas was his charge. Catalytic leader who fostered Christian unity and cooperative ministries across all kinds of lines, racial lines, economic lines, and academic differences. He was an avid exemplar and advocate of qualitative, real preaching, by which he meant expository preaching. A concerned mentor who ennobled and enabled other ministers by letting them stand on his shoulders so they could rise higher to levels of excellence. What an unselfish man. So they could reach greater heights than they could have reached unaided and alone. Something uncompleted was left when he died. And something uncompleted is going to be left when you die. Something uncompleted will be left when I go. We come into this world and live for a time. We find our work after a time and then do our work in time. Then in spite of the importance of that work and any successes or disappointments we experience, we must leave it in time. That is the reality. And now all that just underscores the importance of the story we are sent to preach. Because the story points to another reality. A life beyond this life. A place beyond this place. A time beyond this time. And to rewards for whatever we've done in this life. Oh, my brothers and my sisters, don't you want to hear that cheering promise that our Lord said he was going to give? If, if we fulfill our calling with diligence, be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Don't you want to hear him say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. These are the promised realities that will crown that new and eternal estate that awaits every true believer and every faithful steward of God. Don't let anything in this world make you miss it. To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Arm me with zealous care as in thy sight to live. And oh, thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. Help me to watch and pray and on thyself rely. Assured, if I my trust betray, I shall forever die.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.